the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. How are you doing today? It's really good to have you with us. Uh, a, a kind of a foundation of this show is that you and I are both pastors. You started with a church with your husband called Renewal Church in West Chicago. Uh, I planted a church called uh, Four Corners Community Church in Darien, just kind of south of Downers Grove where I live. Uh, and, and we're both pastors. And so in many ways, we're coming out of, and in many other ways, in the midst of yes. pastoring in the midst of a pandemic. Yes. Aubrey, I'm going to go out with a really, uh, out, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Okay. Pastoring on a, I'm being sarcastic, pastoring during a pandemic has been hard. <laughs> uh, yes. So I you, mean, yes, yes, and yes, and yes. What are some of the difficulties just, you know, when we're writing the book 10 years from now about mm. pastoring a pandemic, what are you going to remember as some of the mm. uh, uh, uniquely difficult things? Yes, I would say the uniquely difficult things is while you yourself are trying to navigate what it means to live in a pandemic, mm-hmm. to protect your loved ones, your kiddos uh, who are navigating life in a pandemic. So you yourself are walking through, honestly, this global tragedy that everyone else is walking through and you're trying to figure that out emotionally, spiritually. At the same time, you have a lot of people that you care for and have loved for many years suddenly very angry at you for how you're navigating That's that right. as right. a leader. And not just in your personal life, but as a church leader, specifically decisions you're making about the church. And I will say that I, I'm going to speak for all the pastors in the world right now. I feel like I can. All of them in the world. <laughs> I feel like I can on this. That has been the most difficult thing. Absolutely. Now, there are beautiful things. If you ask me about that, I could tell you beautiful things too. But that has been the most, most painful is all the people angry at you for really doing something you've never in your entire life done before. And also just personally dealing with it. Yeah, I think that gets at it really well. None of us went to school for this. Right. And that's the same for those of you who own restaurants or run mm-hmm. businesses yep. or run your schools, kids in school, yep. whatever else it might be. But uh, people upset about the decisions you made along the way when you were kind of making it up as you went along. Yeah. And, uh, that gets at this blog that I saw, t- uh, Tom Rayner, who does a lot of uh, writing for pastors. He does a lot of you know research and uh, Tom Rayner wrote at churchanswers.com about five things church leaders wish they had done differently during mm. the pandemic. So we're already getting retrospectives, wow. even though we're still in the midst of the pandemic. Wow. And I read this not expecting to, I was like, okay, we'll see. And I really resonated with some of these. Mm. And like, it, it is a good time, I think, Aubrey, to already ask ourselves, what would I have done? If I could go back a year, if I could go back 18 months, yeah. What would I have done differently? I got to be honest. There's a lot of things I think I would have done differently with the value of hindsight mm. that if another pandemic comes in five years, I think I will uh, mm. I will do differently. So uh, let me read. Let me. It's a good list. So let okay. me go through the five. OK. And then let me say all five. And then you you pick one. The one that you most resonate with that if you uh, started this pandemic all over again, if you could go back in a time yes. machine, 18 months, you would tell that Aubrey. 
uh, hey, do this. Okay. Do it this way. So okay. I'm going to read the five. First, uh, this was a, a survey of pastors. This isn't just Tom Rayner. This, this is, is a bunch of pastors. survey of pastors. Right, a right. bunch of pastors. Uh, number one, more evangelism. He said, uh, a direct quote from somebody here said, we treated it more as a time simply to endure so that we could return to the status quo. And while few things did change following COVID, most of those changes ended up being pretty superficial. We had an opportunity here, though, to do more evangelism and reach our community. So one, more evangelism. Okay. Two, more one-on-one contact. Uh, some of the church leaders look back and realize they could have done a better job staying in touch with their members. Okay. Number three, less panic about finances as mm. the common refrain was God's provided. So, you know, I think a lot of us went into COVID still now going, yeah, we're not going to make it. Right. And so less panic about finances. Number four, better care of staff and key leaders. Only time will tell the toll the pandemic has been on all of us. A pastor I coach shared, I was dealing with multiple issues I never dealt with before. All of this stuff. I didn't check in with my leaders enough. So hmm. kind of not taking care of what was most important, but instead doing what was most urgent, kind of better care. And number five, greater knowledge of the community. Some of the church leaders shared with us that the quarantine would have been a great opportunity to get to know their community and their neighborhood better. So what were some things okay. the church could have done for a community that was scared? The sure. community is sure. scared. So I think that's a really good list yeah. of five. What's maybe one or two that you resonate with that if you could go back in time, you go, yeah, I, I wished I'd, I'd kind of embraced that one. I feel like we actually did a lot of these things well. In fact, reading this, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. But I will say the one-on-one contact stood out to me because I, I think we were so nervous about getting the COVID um disease covid sorry can't talk all of a sudden we were so nervous about getting covid ourselves especially because in our family we have a lot of autoimmune comorbidity things and things were so new and so scary and that we really probably stepped back and stepped away from people when we should have been leaning in there was a season when we were making phone calls especially Mm -hmm. early on just the staff divided up phone calls checking in on people and that stopped i think just out of exhaustion that's honestly exactly right. but that's something we we could have and should have leaned into more i remember uh, reading a twitter account of a pastor of a church of like 10,000 down in texas and he was so proud of his church that right away they called through the entire Whoa. membership of it and i was like there's and he never tweeted again that they did that again <laughs> one time was enough i actually resonated with that with the same one that mm. you did there and, and kind of goes along with number four, better care of staff and key leaders. Yeah, yeah. Because we had, I had a lot of one-on-one contact with each other, with people, but I think I got to the point where I just assumed certain people kind of closer to our orbit, right? Like, cool, mm-hmm. more, we're doing fine. Like, they're, they're, they don't have questions about the church. Right. They're right. worried more about other people. Right. They don't need my care. They're bought in. What right. I came to find out is that it was a lot of the people closest mm. without clarity of what are we doing this, who got the most frustrated. Mm. And quite frankly, some of them have left. Like yeah. that one-on-one contact. Because like you said, yeah. I'm much more, I'm better at one-on-one contact with people across the table from each other. I hate calling phone calls and this and that. Totally. But you couldn't do that anymore. Right. So right. yeah, you thought, oh, I shot them an email. They're good to go. And then you came to find out. They actually weren't. Yeah. 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 Is there anything not on this list yes. where you're like, oh, I would do this? Yeah. There were a couple things. Um, one, There are two things, actually. One, I think, though, we didn't know what we were doing. I think I still would have led with a little more like, no, this is the decision we've made. Yes. The elders, Kevin and I, and the Lord, like we feel like from the Lord, these are the decisions we're making Period. Mm. And I think I would have not not in a like, you know, dictator type way, but just been a little more 
sure of no, we don't know what we're doing, but this is the it's this is doing. the way we're going. It's right. Period. I mean, you know, and just let the chips fall where they may not caring for people, but just not being wishy washy. I think that's one. Then I think too, I we I would have had all of us step off social media, all of the staff leaders, unless we were just encouraging people. I think mm. no social media conversations, nothing controversial. Let's just care for people in this difficult time. That's period. really good. I had one more too. If I if this were coming all over again, I think we all got so freaked out and so worried and so masks and so mm. this. I think there was probably a missed opportunity on my end to just have some fun with it. Good point. Like Ryan. to just provide some levity for the church. Like, mm-hmm. hey, what if we just send out a video every week that's not about are we wearing masks this week? But kind of fun and lighthearted. Make us laugh. Hey guys, we're community. That's I don't good. know all the answers. That's good. But a little bit more levity, and so uh, some of that comes. Hopefully, we never have to think through this again. You know, but Lord, if there's, please. you know, when COVID twenty five comes around, <laughs> we have to do it all <laughs> over again. Uh, coming up next, Aubrey, I'm excited to talk to Dr. Mark Yarhouse. He's a professor of our alma mater of psychology at Wheaton College. But we want to have this discussion. How should we as Christians be responding with love about transgender issues? Mm. We get those questions just on occasion, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk to Dr. Yarhouse about how do we respond with love about transgender issues and especially how is it uh, affecting our youth? Going to have that conversation next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey, one of the things we uh, want to do on this show is continue to wrestle with hard topics that everybody's wrestling with, Mm -hmm. uh, whether they know it or not. And you and I, both as pastors and as parents of students in high school and middle school, Uh, dealing with these questions of gender identity and understanding what our kids are going through and just how we as churches need to wrestle with that. And so we thought it would be great to bring on the author of a book called Emerging Gender Identities, Understanding the Diverse Experiences of Today's Youth. He is a professor at our alma mater, Wheaton College. That's Dr. Mark Yarhouse. Mark, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing very well. Thanks, Brian. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you on, Mark. Hey, before we jump into the uh, this really important book uh, and this important conversation, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more to our audience so they can get to know you? Yeah, I'm a professor at uh, Wheaton College. I teach psychology in the uh, doctoral program in clinical psychology there, and I run the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute, which uh, where we conduct original research on particularly people navigating like sexual or gender identity and religious identity, uh, most frequently as, as Christians. Like, how do they navigate that terrain is mm-hmm. often the question we ask. Mm. And Mark, we know these are uh, deeply complicated conversations to be having in such a short time, so we really appreciate and value your time here today. Um, the title, again, of your book that we're talking about is Emerging Gender Identity. Gender Identities, Understanding the Diverse Experiences of Today's Youth. Can you just talk to us about that subtitle? What are the diverse experiences of today's youth when it comes to this issue? Yeah. um, So in 2015, I wrote a book called Understanding Gender Dysphoria, and I was just trying to introduce the evangelical Christian community to the idea of transgender experiences and just helping them. I, I felt like it was a wave that was going to crest on the church, and there really wasn't much kind of awareness of what the topic was, uh, what the experience was like. And then um, 
Emerging Gender Identities is a book that sort of catches the reader up on what's happened in the last six years, like what's changed. And so transgender experiences is like, you know, the classic example of a, uh, a, a man who says, I'm a woman trapped in, in, in the body of a man. But um, so you have someone like uh, Caitlyn Jenner, right, transitioning and that, mm-hmm. that experience. But emerging gender identities are more like, what does it mean to be, you know, when someone says they're agender or they're bigender or demigender or um, masculine presenting or feminine of center or gray gender, mm. um, the, the list kind of goes on in a sense. And so, and I'm not saying this antagonistically, it's really just how language and categories mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. really changed to, um, to reflect um, the deconstruction of norms around sexuality and gender and yeah. just some of the you know, what does that mean to a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old when they're navigating that language and those categories is just not anything like what their parents would have experienced or their grandparents would have experienced. And that's really what this book's about. That's wonderful. Mark, I have a uh, almost 18-year-old in my house, a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old. And um, I I guess, let me ask it this way. This isn't conversation that a lot of parents are having with their kids, yet we know that they think of the world or are being taught much differently than, like you said, how we were taught. So to the parent out there like me who's going, I don't even know how to start this conversation. What's one or two things, a piece of advice you would give to us parents to go, here's how you just begin the conversation with your children? Well, it's uh, it's certainly perfectly understandable to teach norms around sexuality and gender as a Christian I think the question really comes up, what do you do when there's exceptions to those more normative experiences? Mm. So if most people, if most people's gender corresponds with their birth sex, and that's just the vast majority of people's experiences, well, what happens when there's exceptions to that? And what happens when a young person, a classmate, or someone in your family, extended family, is experiencing their gender differently than their birth sex. And I guess I was hoping that we would have a little bit more compassion towards that, a little Mm -hmm. bit more understanding, and uh, just be a little bit poised to um, maybe see see things through the eyes of of the other. So, for example, I remember one time I was uh, getting pizza from a place, and I was coming out with my my son when he was younger, and... um, we saw a transgender person who was uh, delivering pizza and they were kind of coming out of the store. And my son later asked me, you know, what was going on with that guy? Cause, cause it just, for that, for him, it was just, my son, it was just that, that just looked different, you know, in ways yeah. that he couldn't quite put together. He was like eight or nine. And I said, look, you know, for you and for me, our experience, you know, you as a boy, mine as a man, it reflects how God made us in terms of our, um, being male, but I think we, for some people, their experience of themselves doesn't, um, reflect, um, their being male or female in the way that it does for you. And for me, I think we just saw someone where that's true for them. Hmm. And I think what I'd like you to think about is what would that be like if that were true for, for me or for a Christian and just sort of navigating that space? Um, how would I respond to that? And I think, you know, just trying to help a person understand with a little more sympathy, a little more empathy mm. for someone else's experience. Oh, that's so good. I feel like that's just a good word for all, I mean, all humans, but all Christians in general. 
I, I hope this isn't too negative of a question, Mark, but why do you think so many Christians re- respond without compassion or even with fear or with hate? Like, what what is that about? Well, I think whenever you have norms around sexuality and gender, and, and you believe, and I do too, that there's God's kind of creational intent mm-hmm. for how things should be, ideally, um, we, all, we don't always know what to do with departures from those norms. And the, the departures mean, you know, for some people, that, that there's an erosion of norms, and so you're sort of in a culture war, and so you're pitted against uh, an enemy around that culture war. I think that's, that's the common Christian framing of these conversations. But uh, another way to think about it is what happens... So beyond creation, in the story of the fall, and the way that the fall could touch all of creation, including our sexuality and gender. And so it's not as though people experiencing this are doing so out of willful disobedience. You know, they find themselves experiencing a discordant gender identity. And so we may have different perspectives on why they do, and whether we should celebrate that, or whether we should... Uh, treat it more with um, empathy or whether we should respond in some other way. But that's really what we're, we have an opportunity as a Christian community to say, we don't have to respond by demonizing another group of people. We can say, look, we don't fully understand how this develops or how a person experiences this. And you can push back against gender ideology as sort of a philosophical position, Mm -hmm. but you don't want to push back against the person. You know, the person Mm -hmm. navigating this space is navigating this space, and God loves that person and wants a relationship with that person, and so you want to position yourself to make that even possible, you know, and I think that's possible uh, as people get to know you as a Christian and you're connecting with them as a real person uh, rather than as an ideological, you know, position or something like that. That's such a good word. Again, Dr. Mark Yarhouse is a professor of psychology at Wheaton College. Uh, director of the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute, and the author of a book that came out just last year called Emerging Gender Identities, uh, Understanding the Diverse Experiences of Today's Youth. You mentioned in the first part of the interview uh, just how much change, say, in six years, in a decade, this past, uh, you know, all the terms and all this. Um, you're kind of at the cutting edge of trying to understand all of uh, kind of the gender language and everything. How much more change do you think is going to happen? I guess let me ask it this way. A decade from now, are we going to look back and be like, things have changed so much more? Because as a parent, I look at what my kids are learning and I'm like, we had no even categories for that when I was in high school or college. So do you think this is an ever evolving discussion that's going to continue to be changing? You know, it's, it's, that's a really interesting question, and it's hard to predict. I, I, when I started my career, I, you know, 23 or so years ago, I would never have thought we would have gotten to this conversation. That's right. And I, I'd, always seen, I'd always seen people around gender identity questions, but it was such a rare phenomenon. I didn't think it would take on the cultural salience that it has. And so it's very hard to predict, for me anyway, what is the next kind of cultural conversation that's going to become central in a larger cultural discourse or conversation about whatever it is. It doesn't have to be about sexuality and gender, but that often becomes kind of a central piece of discussion. So that's a great, great question, one that's hard for me to predict. And Mark, I, I want to step back a little bit because I'm fascinated how you even got into this field. What led you to uh, direct this institute and be passionate about this topic? You know, when I was uh, a 
graduate student. I, I didn't. I was studying psychology as as a graduate student, and I came to graduate school really interested in marriage and family um, psychology. I was interested in how faith interacts with the field of psychology. There's a lot of things like that. But I had the opportunity to work for uh, the uh, department chair, and one of his areas of research was this topic around sexual orientation and identity. Mm-hmm. And it was just such an honor to be asked. I said yes, uh, not knowing you know what, I, what exactly I was getting into. <laughs> and at our, our first research meeting, he was explaining what he wanted to work on with me. It had to do with sexual orientation and identity. And, um, you know, we were we could work well together. I enjoyed working with him. He was a great mentor to me. Um, but then he became the senior academic officer, and he was just really slammed and, and just really busy and uh, was not able to do the writing and speaking that he normally would have done unless his research assistant would do it, mm-hmm. you know, with him or for him or something like that. So I ended up doing a lot of work like that. And then I graduated with my doctorate, and I looked around. There were no Christians in the field of psychology, interacting with this topic, yeah. and the people outside of psychology didn't seem to know the research that I had just been studying for the last four or five years. Wow. And so it almost felt like a matter of stewardship, like I needed to be a good steward of the mentoring and training and uh, education that I'd received. You know, I prayed about it, um, kind of held it loosely. I did write some other things that aren't maybe as well known, but um, but... By far, this door opened the most, and there were just opportunity after opportunity, and, and there were needs. I mean, there were genuine needs for churches, for families. Uh, it was just an open area of research that was just developing, and um, and, I, and there continue to be just a number of interesting questions. Uh, and today, you know, I deeply care about the topic, but, yeah. you know, at the time I was kind of dispassionate about it, and mm-hmm. I think that actually helped me entering into the conversation. I, I didn't have an ax to grind. I wasn't, I think people expected me to come to conferences and be really confrontational and uh, combative. And, you know, I'm, I would just talk to people like we're talking right now. And it was, I think, kind of disarming and it helped really build some relationships that have stood the test of time. And even where we disagree on topics, I think it's, uh, it's I think God's sort of used, in a sense, my own, temperament and being a little bit more dispassionate early on to help me um, build some bridges. Interesting. uh, Mark, as we told you off air, Aubrey and I are both pastors. And so uh, we we know there's a lot of pastors who listen to the show. Mm -hmm. So what would you tell people who are leading in churches? Because really, oftentimes around this topic, churches are just kind of uh, you know, kind of yelling and just kind of saying, hey, we got to stand up for what we believe is right, all that kind of stuff. But how would you encourage churches or pastors to even begin these conversations uh, in their church in ways that you think would be helpful, changing? Well, one thing is to really locate your area of ministry. So one thing that I write about in Emerging Gender Identities is you can you can sort of think about different areas of ministry around this topic based on the identity of the person you're engaging with. So the three areas that I talk about are a political identity, a public identity, and a private identity. Hmm. So a political identity is going to be an activist, and that's not going to be a common encounter. Not most of us are called to minister at that place uh, engaging with activists. Um, I do that sometimes, but not, that's not that common. Uh, the second area of ministry is going to be uh, your public identity, and this is your neighbor. 
This is your coworker. This is your family member. And uh, I think what I would keep in mind there is that we Christians at the local church have the capacity and the skill set already to minister well to neighbors and coworkers and people who are just different than us based on just individual characteristics that we're not that familiar with. So when we interact with our neighbor who's agnostic or we interact with a coworker from a different cultural background than we're familiar with, if we know how to do that, we know how as a Christian to be in relationship with another person and to see them as a person who's made the image of God mm-hmm. and God wants a relationship with them and so on and so forth. So what you're doing with this topic is you're ex- extending that skill set to another person whose individual characteristics are different than yours and you're not as familiar with. But you have the capacity to do this. So that's public identity. Yeah. Yeah. Then the last one is private identity. And this is the person who's actually asking you for help. Like They are conflicted by how their experience of their gender and their experience of their faith are to come together in some meaningful way. And so that's more like, you know, direct ministry to that person, maybe counseling with that person. And some of us are going to be called to do that and others are not. So as a pastor, I would say, first, you know, what am I called to? What are my levels of Mm -hmm. ministry? And then how do I equip people and exhort people in their areas of ministry? Because you would treat people differently based on those different identities I just described. Wow. Mm Oh, that's so, such a helpful breakdown, Mark. Right. So practical. Where can our listeners find more about you, about the Institute, about your books? Uh, where can people connect with Mark Yarhouse? Well, I direct an institute at Wheaton College. So that's wheaton.edu and then backslash SGI for the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute. That has a lot of uh, ways to reach us. Um, uh, my email is SGI at wheaton.edu, so that's another way to communicate mm-hmm. with us. And, uh, yeah, we provide um, resources to churches, to K-12, to Christian colleges and universities, other parachurch ministries. Uh, we do a lot of staff training and uh, have an outward-facing clinical presence. And so there are a lot of different things that we do to help people navigate this space if it would be a resource to others. That's great. You can also find Mark on Twitter at Mark Yarhouse. That's at Mark Yarhouse. And Mark, uh, it's always good to have somebody on from the alma mater. So thanks for all the good work you're doing mm-hmm. at Wheaton. And Thank you. again, we'd encourage people to go pick up your book, Emerging Gender Identities, Understanding the Diverse Experiences of Today's Youth. That's Dr. Mark Yarhouse. Mark, thanks so much for spending time with us. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on, Brian Aubrey. I really appreciate his time. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. One of the things that we love about uh, The Common Good is that Brian and I are really committed to sharing stories and having guests and talking about issues that sometimes we disagree about or sometimes that we um, see don't see eye to eye on. And we know sometimes you actually disagree with us or do agree with us. And and we do that really intentionally because we want to be a show where we can find common good, the name of our show, in things that can be divisive. So I wanted to jump in this hour and talk about a subject that can be pretty controversial, that could push some buttons. But we're, we're going to ask you, even as Brian and I maybe disagree, we're going to ask you to lean in and let's see where we can find some common ground. There was an article at Religion News Network 
that I wanted to share with you called Seven Things White Christians Can Do to Address White Supremacy at Church. It was written by an author named Robert P. Jones, who wrote a book called White Too Long, which came out in 2020. And um, it was really following the murder of George Floyd and where he had the privilege of speaking with dozens of predominantly white congregations and denominal institutions about the legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. The book came from that. And he said one of the questions that he often gets is, what do we do now? And he lists seven things. So, Brian, before we jump into these seven things, do you have anything that you want to say? Otherwise, I'm going to read them and then have you respond. We'll just talk back and forth. Yeah, that's what we do on this show. Uh, yeah. So I read this, Aubrey. I'm going to, I was looking for an umbrella of mercy because we might get, we, I'd love to know your take on this. Sure. Do you ever have the umbrella of mercy? Symbol? Sure. Like you can say whatever you want on this. Yes. When does this go too far? At what point do you, and this is obviously two white pastors, two white suburban pastors. Very discussing. fair. Very fair. Very fair. Um, but at what point, so when he says in this article, uh, the first step toward recovery from the distortions of white supremacy is to separate being white from being Christian. Yeah. A, what does he mean? And B, at what point uh, is, because I, I saw a Twitter argument, Twitter's a bad spot to kind of gauge your arguments, right? But there was a Twitter argument going on this week um, about, um, you know, parts of scripture that have only been read through white lenses mm-hmm. and, and wanting to take away a lot of very, or, what I would consider very orthodox things. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm struggling with, How do you know that this is what we need to do and this is too far? This isn't far enough. And you've wrestled with this much more than I have. You and your husband have. So I want to be, I guess I more want to ask you that question. Yeah. Because sometimes it feels to me uh, like we don't go far enough in this conversation. Sometimes, and I've got to be honest, I feel like this author kind of rubbed me this way at the beginning. Yeah. It feels too far. Like we're we're going, we've kind of swung this pendulum a little far. How do you wrestle with that? Um, that's a, it's a really important. And I think a question that a lot of people are asking, Brian. So I don't, I think under the umbrella of mercy, yes, but I think you're asking a really honest question. And again, here I am a white woman trying to answer this question. So, you know, let somebody else talk. Um, what, here's what I read because Kevin and I have been in this conversation quite a while. When I hear him say that, uh, white Christians need to be able to separate being white from being Christian, I hear him talking about quote unquote whiteness, mm-hmm. which is um, this idea that because you're white, you are more privileged, you are more Christian than someone else. Mm-hmm. Jesus is a white Jesus. The gospel came to white people. White people are the ones who help everyone else see the light. That's what I think he means. But if you just pull that quote out of context, we're never going to say that to a black person. We're right. never going to say separate your blackness from your faith. We're never going to say that to an Asian American, separate your Asian American American heritage from your faith. We're not right. going to do that. Yep. In a lot of these conversations, what um, people are calling white people to is to consider what is your actual identity. So you're not really what quote unquote white right for instance part of our work was doing like a deep dive in our own heritage i'm scottish i'm irish i'm welsh you're probably german and norwegian that's right you're blonde norwegian Norwegian. (laughs) so some of this conversation is to say actually i'm more than just this like person with white skin i come from a welsh background my my family were pastors in scotland and in ireland and inherited the faith there and so that's part of it is to dig deeper than skin color to get to actual ethnicity to Mm -hmm. get beyond just Mm -hmm. like the label whiteness 
I know all that because Kevin and I've been in this conversation. If you're pulling that out of context, you're like, well, wait, I, I am a white person. I can't deny who I am because of it. So I understand sure. that question for sure. Yeah. And I guess, um, and I actually think we had this guy on in the show a long time ago. Oh, when interesting. Came out. And so, yeah, I, I don't know, Aubrey, I struggle with the, this is a super important question, but when, then when he says things like, by the talks, way, this is a white person saying this. Correct, just correct. So uh, who the author is, yes. Yeah. Uh, talking about the assumption that white lives matter more than others, mm-hmm. how that's just kind of embedded in all of us. And I'm mm-hmm. like, maybe? I feel like I've we've preached differently. Like, I don't feel like I... See, I'm, I'm, Be you, it's okay. There's grace into, here, Brian. I don't feel like I feel that way. Yeah. And he would say that's the problem. Yes. That you don't see that. Right. Whereas I would say maybe the problem is painting with a broad brush to say, mm. no, because you're a white person, you believe that about mm. yourself because you've been conditioned to yeah. believe that no matter what. Yeah. You can you can read the scriptures and say, no, I you yeah. know, I see there's neither Jew nor Greek. And I've preached that from the front yeah. and I've taught my kids that you and Kevin have kind of wrestled with that. Yeah. And it, maybe I'm misreading him. It feels like he's saying. It's still there in you. Like, yeah, this he, is he still, might be saying that. This is still who you are, mm-hmm. and every white person is. Yeah. And therefore, we've got to take some really drastic steps. I don't know. That starts to, that's where I feel like the pendulum it gets feels too uncomfortable. Hard for you. Yeah. Not just for me. It feels like yeah. you're painting some broad brushes yeah. that have gotten us in trouble the other direction. When sure. we paint broad brushes sure. about this ethnicity or sure. this person. Sure. And I know it's way too simplistic, and I know people out there are just going to want to drive off the road. Like, I just wish we could get to the point of, like, yeah. this, is what, this is what Jesus says. Yeah. And, this and, that. and I yeah. understand the issues with yeah. that. So anyway, I know that's not necessarily the point of the article. There's some broad brush painting that I, as a white person, start to go, well, that doesn't feel fair. Mm. And so, you know, do I have to embrace that, mm. or can I push back on mm. that? I think a lot of people feel that way. I, for one, have no problem saying, oh, no, 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 I without Jesus in my life, I'm totally racist. I have known my, I've been in Africa. Kevin, I lived in Africa for a year. Like there were things that I was like, Oh Lord, you got to get this out of me. Like I found myself going, Oh, these people. (gasps) Oh man. The minute I'm saying that, that's my racism. So that Mm. this is not offensive to me. I'm like, Oh yeah. All, all of us, I think all of us apart from Christ have sin and therefore we have racism because racism is sin. So that doesn't rub me the wrong way, but I think you represent a lot of people, Brian, who totally would be like, "Wait, I don't want to be." If you're gonna, if you're gonna come at me with this conversation, let's let's nuance it differently than that. I think that's fair, yeah. and I yeah. also worry about the trajectory of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Where's this conversation a year from now? Where's the book that's been written two years from now? I don't. I feel like. Yeah, I feel like we're moving in a direction that makes me uncomfortable. But um, I, with that said, I've talked to enough of my African-American brothers and sisters yeah. who I love dearly. Yeah. And we've talked to them on the show. Yeah. We've talked to uh, I've talked personally that I know this is true. So I'm not yeah. trying to be like, hey, not a racist. But, you know, right. I totally get it. Right. I, I'm wanting to talk about this particular mindset of academia versus someone going no here's my mm. i want to hear more like hey here's my experience and I, mm. I i you know when people push back i'm like what who are we to push back on experience who are we to push yeah. back on the yeah. story? so anyway yeah. yep we didn't actually get to the seven no, things that's we okay we do. don't have to we don't have to i think that's probably <laughs> enough think- hey if you want to read the article that's you want right. to know what these seven things are then you can go to religion news network just search seven things christians can do to address white supremacy at church i actually think there it's a really good list but it's not a bad list. I'm, I'm not, I'm not you against may the disagree list. with the list. At least let's engage in the list like like Brian and I are doing. I think that's really important. Well, stick around as we return. We're going to be talking 
about the single person's catechism. We're asking 21 questions to help unmarried Christians develop a theology of singleness. And more than that, we're asking how the church can get better at coming alongside single Christians. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. Sometimes married pastors don't do a great job ministering to the single folks in their midst. And so we've been told. So we've been told. <laughs> and I would say I would say there are churches in places that do this so, so well. I mm-hmm. think by nature of having churches that are in the suburbs, in evangelicalism, we tend to sort of, even b- with our bias, like not even realize we're doing this, minister to the married folks That's or right. draw the married folks with kids in or the families in and... Generally speaking, I think it's a fair critique of the church that we need to do better at coming alongside our single people. Uh, what do you think about that and what do you do about it at your church? Oh, those are two different questions. Okay, I don't think fair. I do anything very well with that uh, particular topic yeah. because you're right. Um, you know, you and I got married to our spouses uh, at a very young age. So it's not only been a while. I was 22 years old. Yeah, same. Um, and I was, I was yep. six months out of college. You were six months out of mm-hmm. college. And so I, um, not only am I married, Aubrey, I don't really have any frame of reference for the quote unquote single life. I don't. Yeah, exactly. Because Eve, I graduated college engaged. I was engaged when I graduated. So there was a six month window there where we weren't married and I wasn't in college, but we were engaged. We're planning a wedding. Yeah. All this kind of stuff. And so you, in many ways, you, um, you minister and you kind of get drawn towards what you know. Right. And so uh, married life is all that I know. Plus, you said it correctly. We live in the suburbs. Suburbs are um, suburbs versus the city. Uh, suburbs are kind of geared towards married people. Right. It just right. is what it is. Right. And so um, with that said, I think we unintentionally in churches make single people feel like second class citizens. Totally. I think there's a um, – there is a um, – kind of an understanding, an implication that says Jesus loves you, but the chief end of uh, of our life right here, especially in the Christian world, is, is to, to get married, get married, yeah. have kids, Absolutely. do this and that. And none of us would ever say that explicitly from the pulpit. Right. Uh, the other thing we do, and I do this, guilty as charged on this one, is, again, only kind of knowing married life. All of my examples have to do with marriage. Mm-hmm. So I've, or I've actually, even kids. I mean, this could relate yes. to kids. So too, I've yeah. actually thought of that over the years when I've said things like, hey, and if you're married, what's that say to the person who's not? And or, you know, mm. my wife and I, we're this. And so it, that's OK. That's my yeah. experience. But if that's the only direction I go and if we never speak to singleness, there becomes this kind of second class citizen that I don't think any of us believe. Ian was always good with this. And my co-host, uh, Ian Simpkins, because he didn't get married. Until he was like in his young 30s. Okay. And so he did ministry, pastor, single. And he he had some really interesting stories where he was getting kind of pigeonholed as like, come speak to singleness. Come Mm, speak to this. Interesting. And so he kind of, I think that probably helps his ministry now of having that perspective. Anyway, I don't think, especially where you and I are out in the suburbs, my guess is if you asked a single person, 
Do they feel comfortable in the suburbs? Do they feel comfortable in the churches of the suburbs? My guess is that the answer to that is not always an enthusiastic yes. Yeah, and definitely something that as pastors we have to figure out how to get better at. Over at Christianity Today, I wanted to bring this topic up because they have an interesting article in their marriage and relationships section called The Single Person's Catechism. It's essentially a catechism. I mean, it is. It's even based on uh, maybe the Westminster Catechism. 21 questions and answers to help the unmarried Christian develop a theology of singleness. I actually don't think this is just for the unmarried Christian. It certainly is for the single Christian, but also for married Christians, I think, to be like, oh, yep, I, this this is uh, a new perspective for yeah. me, some uh, um, eye-opening for me. And as, as Christian leaders, we need to be aware of this conversation. So we're not going to go through all 21, but let me just read a couple examples uh, to you, Brian, and to you, listener. Um God, section one, God's sovereignty over my relationship status. What is the chief end of my singleness? Mm. Here's the answer to have my soul so consumed by the delight of loving and being loved by God. And so mesmerized by his singular sufficiency for my deep thirst for love, acceptance, belonging, and significance that it testifies before the world to the preeminent excellencies of God mm. as Lord, lover, and friend. That's good. Not good. It is good because I, I just think Aubrey that we um, we we want here. Let's just put it bluntly like this: Jesus was single. There you go. Paul, Paul was, was single. single. Yeah. Like there is this idea, and I just don't. I, I think we do it subtly mm-hmm. in churches, in evangelical churches of. If you're single, there's something wrong with you. Just hold on and wait. There's, yeah. there's that guy coming. There's Prince Charming mm-hmm. coming. There's totally. That Prince. That, well, therefore, if it doesn't happen, am I less of a person? Am I a broken person? Did God mess up? Yeah. Is there this? And we never would say that. This is what I want to keep going to. But we we, we subtly say messages. And yep. We do this about a lot of topics. But yes, I think singleness is near the top of the of the line. Like, oh, you're uh, I'm this age. Oh, you're married. No. Oh. You know, it's those kinds Uh of things. And again, you and I are not speaking from experience here, having gotten married pretty young. I've talked to enough people who aren't married that there is like this kind of, um, oh, I'm sorry. And they're Mm. going, I enjoy being single. I'm good. I've got this life. And I do always try to be remind myself and others, like, we have some very important people in the Bible. I mean, single. our Lord and Savior. And spoke of singleness, I think of the Apostle Paul, spoke of singleness as a benefit. Yes. As a blessing. Yes. As uh, opening them up to being, a- opening him up to being able to live right. for things of eternity, all right. this kind of stuff. And marriage actually has the burden. Yeah. And we reverse that. So I do think it's so important that we have a theology of singleness mm-hmm. and blessing those who are single. Yeah, that's so good. I think I think those what you just said, the theology of singleness and then blessing those who are single. I feel mm-hmm. like that's such a good word for all of us, Brian. Let me quickly share this story. But I we have a really good friend who wanted to be a church planner, but he was single. And his mentors kept saying to him, "Oh, just wait until you're married. Just oh, wait no. until you're married." And Kevin and I we he was staying at our house one time and we went, "Bro, <laughs> Open your Bible. Paul was planting churches all over the place without a spouse. Look at Jesus, like the head of the church with his spouse, of course, being the bride, but like no physical earthly spouse. Like you are blessed. If God is calling you, you are blessed and you are sent. And it was honestly, I'm not saying we have a lot. We have a lot to learn in this area at our church, but that was the first time he had ever heard that. That's wild. I know that to me was mind blowing. All right, let me read one more and then we'll close. Question two, what is our only gain in singleness or marriage? Here's the answer. 
And I love this. It's in singleness or marriage. Mm -hmm. Here's the answer that we may better know Christ. Mm. I have no other gain. The freedom of singleness and the intimacy of marriage are but flotsam and jetsam without Mm. his supremacy in them. Both flourish or flounder to the extent Christ is known through them. That's good. And that's so good. That's good. Well, coming up next, Brian and I are going to do one of our favorite things to do. And it's because this is a little selfish. I'm going to be out of town on Friday. We normally do this on Friday, but we're doing it on a Wednesday. And that is our top five list. Stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And Brian, I'm going to be out of the studio the rest of the week. You are joined by the noble Steve Kogel. Oh, well done. Thank you. Thank you. But I felt a little jealous. And so I could not let you do a top five list without me. I wasn't going to allow you and Steve to take over. Understood. Agreed. Agreed. We're doing this a few days early. Normally, we do our top five list on Fridays. Today is Wednesday. Thank you, folks, for bearing with us. Today, we have a fabulous top five list, and it is top five pies. It's like if you're thinking about Thanksgiving, if you're thinking about holidays, these are the top five pies. It makes me hungry. I'm drooling thinking about it. But before we dive into our list, we have to do one of our other favorite things, and that is our incredible top five jingle that our producer Debbie made for us. Let's go ahead and listen to that. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. All right, there it is. Top five pie flavors. Brian, are you ready? Yeah, and somewhere we should also discuss the worst pies that we. Uh, oh, I wonder. Uh, if write that down. That would I be have different. a I have a very definitive one that is often popular that I hate that I want to see if it shows mm, up on yours. Okay, all right. All right, number five for me. You're going to see a little bit of a theme. I'm a I'm a fruit pie person. Okay, okay. Uh, so number five for me, I'm going to go with peach pie. Oh, I love a peach pie. That's peach on my list, pie. but higher. Yep. Oh, it is higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we might have more crossover than normal because there's not that we might many have some pies. Pie agreement. <laughs> Here, are there any pies? I was trying to think real fast because I'm a huge ice cream person. Okay. I don't think Ooh. there's an ice cream. You could put ice cream on. Yeah, pie, you can. But there's not like ice cream cake. Right. There's not ice cream pie. Oh, I great question. I mean, f- I feel like fried ice cream is the closest thing yeah, to it, you know. So. But I, I, yeah, I, I tried to remember if there's anything, but yeah. I don't think it works. All right, okay. peach pie. All right, so you're gonna you well, you always think I'm weird with my answers, and I don't know how to say this pie. I just know they have it at Cooper's Hawk, where we have been together with our spouses. Yes, we have been. Um, this pie is either called Bonafi or Bonafé. I'm not sure. No idea what that is. It is this like, um, kind of caramely s'moresy with, uh, like brown sugar crumble. It does sound good. Delicious. There's even maybe some banana on it. It is amazing. My sister says Bonafé. That's how Southern people say it. At Cooper's Talk, they laughed and they said, it's Bonafi. So I don't know. You can you can write in and tell us, but that's my pie. It sounds I'm hungry as we are having this conversation already. Oh, Bonafé. It comes there. Oh, OK. Our producer is actually telling us this. This is why I'm having this moment. It is short for banana and toffee, Bonafi. 
that makes sense. Yes, that's what it tastes like, and it is delicious. Okay, well, you just got uh, you came close to one that I like here. Okay. Number four, I'm going to go with a banana cream pie. Oh, banana cream pie! Love some. Now, Yum. I think people either love or hate banana, and I'm a banana fan. I like banana too. So I am going to go with banana cream now, pie. Now, Biston does biz does banana cream pie have Nilla wafers on it, or am I thinking banana pudding? You're thinking of banana pudding. Yeah, that is also delicious. Yes, anything with Nilla wafers is uh, Ooh, very is hungry all of a sudden. Oh my goodness. <laughs> all right, number four, I'm going to go with the pecan pie. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, it's not my favorite, but it feels like a holiday tradition. I like the filling more than the actual pecan, but I, I enjoy pecan pie. I don't think you do. That was a very lukewarm. I probably uh, should have put that as five. You I'm were realizing. a lot more excited yeah. about the Bonifay. I, I, mis- <laughs> I misordered that. If I could do it again, I would reorder that. You, you All right. did that. All right. Number three for me. And this is, this you can get anywhere, but this is, uh, I think of, um, uh, what's our pie place? Uh, the Baker Square. Baker Square. I yeah. think of Baker Square. And that is their French silk pie. Oh, I forgot about French silk pie, Brian. Just that fluffy chocolate with the oh. whipped cream. Oh, I'm like, so hungry right now. I, we're killing each other. Oh my gosh. Give me some French silk pie, and Dang. I will be. I think of all the pies mm. here because that's the least filling one. Yeah. I think I could sit with an entire French silk oh, yeah. pie. There's no and doubt. Do a lot of damage with that French silk pie. I feel pie. like you've just won the list and maybe all the lists with the French silk pie. That was good. Okay, there is probably a real name for this pie, but I don't actually know the name. Okay. And I haven't had it that much. It's not that popular, but when I have it, I'm like <gasps> and it's very rich. It's the opposite of French silk. You can't have very much this is caramel pie. It's like a salted mm. caramel. And you, man, you add some vanilla ice cream to that and it is delicious. But like, what's the... Yeah, it's like warm the, caramel. I know that sounds a little weird, but it is... a caramel runny, isn't it? Liquidy? Uh, it's, a, it's a little, maybe in between. Okay. It's really good. I think you're going to need to bring some in. I might have to. Sometimes people do like chocolate caramel together pie. I mean, I love all things caramel. So. Man, we got to leave it here. It sounds like you just created. Can we just go to Baker Square? Show's, Show's over. over. <laughs> I think you just created an enormous milk dud. <laughs> and just put some bread on milk top. You might be pie. right about that. All right. Okay. Uh, number two for me, we are going to go to the traditional of all traditionals. Apple pie. Apple pie is a great solid pie. Yeah, yeah. I would love to have some uh, vanilla pie. ice cream on the side, yep. but uh, that is Americana mm-hmm. is is the apple pie. Yep, that's good. So I'm going to go with my number two is also a Baker Square pie. Okay. It is a, it's not a blueberry pie. I almost went with blueberry pie, but it's like they're triple berry. So yes, it's got blueberry berry. and raspberry and I don't, the strawberry probably, Maybe. a little whipped cream. That is a good old Pie. Okay. Right so, Any honorable mentions before we jump in? Here? No. Let me tell you the ones oh, that okay. I dislike. Okay. Let's hear them. Uh, I'm going to give you two, okay. and people might be out there wondering: Are they going to go crazy? We we made a, an agreement here, just pies. So you yeah, can't we're not go going shepherd's, shepherd's pie, pie, pizza yeah. pie, right, or right, any of that. Right. So, uh, I Aubrey, two that I come to mind as like keep them away from me. Okay. Uh, Coconut cream pie. Anything coconut. We're going to have a conversation about this. Go ahead. Do you like coconut? No, but it is my family. It is like a family tradition. And every year my dad forces me to eat it. And he's like, Aubrey, you love coconut pie. Dad, I don't love coconut cream pie. I just don't, Dad. I I love you, but not that. I hate all things coconut cream. So your dad is wrong, but happy birthday to your dad. Happy birthday, Dad. Uh, And two, this is the controversial one. Okay. Pumpkin pie. 
I hate okay. pumpkin pie. I okay. hate all things pumpkin. We decided these are called dishonorable mentions, yes. by the way. So I don't hate pumpkin pie, but I I kind of feel you because yeah. I don't love it. If it's yep. in a, if it's in a lineup, it's not the one I'm going to go okay. for. Because the pumpkin genre in general, I stay away from. Yeah. But I um, it's interesting that you're kind of okay with it because I did have a theory that the pumpkin pie people either like love it to the point that they'll like fight for it mm. or they dislike it like if i had to be in a category i would go more dislike than okay. like because i don't do the pumpkin spice latte i'm not a big like that yep. flavor but I, I i don't mind it okay okay number I, one number oh wait, no, one. no no your honorable mentions i'm no, sorry well so i was also funnily enough gonna say i don't like coconut cream pie i didn't even have an honorable mention i was just gonna say that yes yeah dishonorable mention okay so my number one is your number five but i'm realizing i have totally misordered mine my number five should actually be my number one but Number one is a good old-fashioned peach pie. Mm. Love it warm. Love vanilla ice cream on it. So, so delicious. It is true. Anything you could put vanilla ice cream on I mean, is good. Yeah. Yep. Okay, So Brian. my number one is interesting okay. for me because I did not grow up with this pie at all. Oh. I kind of have come to this late in the game. Okay. I'm and interested. With, with each time I have it, it becomes more <gasps> my favorite. Like it, Intrigue. It, is, it, it just uh, goes further and further up my list to number one. Now it's number one by a lot. Okay. Cherry pie. Oh, yeah. We disagree. This I, is where we part ways, Brian. I love. Really? Love, love <laughs> cherry pie. Cherry pie, cherry pie. Cool. That's a song from it is. a band. It is. Um, Warrant? Warrant. Yeah, wow. There's hot. Brian, yeah. I, I, can't, I can't do anything cherry. As we've talked about before, it makes we me have. think of cough medicine. But yet you can do grape. I was about to say, if there was a grape pie, this mama would be eating that grape pie with some ice cream on it. All right. Well, that is our top five pie flavors. You let us know what you think. You can bring us some pies if you want. We will sample them for you. French silk, man. Ah, French silk. That's a solid one. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Brian and Steve Copa will actually be back here tomorrow. I'll be out the next couple days. But they'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.